Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. The Green Book was a guidebook created by Victor Hugo Green and published from 1936 to 1966. The book existed to serve African-American travelers during the Jim Crow era. In Victor's words, the guide was meant to give travelers, quote, information that will keep him from running into difficulties, embarrassments, and to make his trip more enjoyable, end quote. The guidebook helped travelers navigate the logistical complexities of travel during racial segregation by listing accommodation and food establishments that would serve African Americans, and it helped travelers avoid dangerous sundown towns where violence and death could happen on any given day. In honor of Black History Month, I wanted to share with you the history and some of the stories behind this incredibly important guidebook, The Green Book, and we're doing that by bringing on one of the world's foremost experts. Her name is Candace Taylor. She's the author of the book Overground Railroad, which examines black mobility and culture through the lens of the Green Book. She has road tripped hundreds of thousands of miles around the USA, visiting and documenting Green Book sites. Taylor was a fellow at Hutchins Center at Harvard University, and her projects have been commissioned and funded by numerous organizations, including the Library of Congress, National Geographic, the American Council of Learned Societies, the National Endowment for the Humanities, National Park Service, and the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Her work has been featured in over 50 media outlets, including The Atlantic, CBS Sunday Morning, The Guardian UK, The Los Angeles Times, The New York Times, and on and on. She is a true expert. We're lucky to have her here today, and she's going to help us explore the history behind the most important guidebook ever written, The Green Book. Thanks for being here and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, and thank you for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. So excited for this week's episode, as you heard at the top. We have Cam Daisy Taylor here, and this is an important one. This guidebook saved lives. It helped people travel in every sense of the word. And I cannot imagine having to buy a guidebook for this reason. What travelers then, African-American travelers then must have gone through to just take a trip and 
something that we take for granted now. We can just get in the car and go somewhere. Not the case during the Jim Crow era. In fact, some of these towns you couldn't be in after sundown, these sundown towns, where you could be killed. You could be uh, arrested. It was illegal. Just so many things about this blows my mind. And when I stumbled upon the Green Book, I was immediately fascinated. I've been trying to get somebody on to talk about it for some years and finally found the perfect person in Candace Taylor. I'm so happy to have her here to share that history and some of the stories behind this book and how it impacted people's lives and allowed people to travel, not just for pleasure, but think about people that wanted to go see their loved ones, for example, or maybe travel somewhere for work. There are a lot of reasons to travel, and uh, you know, a book like this should never have to exist, <laughs> but it did have to exist during this time period, and thankfully, uh, Victor Hugo Green identified that need and was a savvy businessman and created something that impacted the lives of millions. So I can't wait to share this episode with you. Before we get into it, thanks for being here. Don't forget to check in. I always want to remind you, if you have not done so, drop me a voicemail, drop me an email, jason at zero to travel.com. I love to make this a two-way conversation. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? It's about the community. I wanted to give a shout out to Anne, who wrote me an email with the subject heading Misfits. We had a, an episode recently with my friend Wanda Duncan, and we were talking about being misfits as, as travelers or people that want to maybe be out on the road away from their normal setting. You can listen to that show if you're interested in hearing more around that topic. But anyway, Anne wrote an email and said, thanks for another great podcast. I wish I had learned this 30 years ago. Never heard it explained that way, why we feel more like ourselves when we travel. Sometimes I would look around and wonder how all these people could just be content never leaving their hometown. I've had the wanderlust all my life and never had the courage to live, quote, outside the box. We have a few more years to retirement and then we are hitting the road. Keep the good words coming. Thank you, Anne, and never too late to live that quote outside the box lifestyle. Never too late. Congratulations on your upcoming travels, and again, please check in if you have the time. Now, without further ado, let's slip and slide into the interview segment. Meet up on the other side. I will leave you with a quote before I let you go. Enjoy the interview, and thanks for listening. I am thrilled and honored to welcome Candace Taylor to the show. She is an award-winning author, cultural documentarian, and the owner of TaylorMade Culture, a company that produces content for books, exhibitions, and multimedia projects that enrich, challenge, and inspire new ways to think about culture and identity. You can learn more about her important work at TaylorMadeCulture.com. Of course, any links you hear today will be put into the show notes. Candace, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored. Uh, such wonderful work you're doing. And I, I guess where I wanted to start is I saw in uh, some of the interviews that you've done, some of the videos that you call yourself a cultural documentarian. And that's something I just read uh, that bio from your LinkedIn. And I, I just think that's such a cool job. <laughs> like, What was your journey to becoming a cultural documentarian? It's actually a kind of a title I've never really heard before. Yeah, you know, honestly, it's a title that I created because there wasn't a accurate description for what I do. I mean, you know, there's definitely documentarians, um, and they tend to focus on film and um, and they may document culture, but 
The road work I've done over the last 20 years, I've been documenting subcultures throughout the United States um, for over 20 years. And everything from female bullfighters to diner waitresses. And now, of course, I've been looking at um, the Green Book, um, hair salons. I'm in these spaces that are so different and the culture changes and my response to that changes. So I think there's been a muscle that I've built over the last, especially the last 15 years of, you know, I've driven over a half a million miles throughout the country. Um, And I think there's a muscle built when you are within different cultures. I'm a black woman, how I'm perceived in those different environments. If I walk into a hair salon in Chinatown in San Francisco, everybody looks at me like, oh my God, please, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know. And then when I say I'm not here to get my hair done, they, they're relieved. Um, but then when I say, oh, I, I want to interview you, you know, and um, interview the people you, you serve, it's challenging. Um, and I think most documentarians, you know, do get out of their comfort zone, but it's the rigors of the road, I think, that really just made me feel like I needed a different title um, that felt more accurate because I was looking at so many different things. How do you decide what to pursue? I mean, part of what you do is is curation, right? And, and in some ways, there's so much there are so many different subcultures and so much to explore. And I'm sure, you know, so, so many things you could dive into, but you have to kind of lock in on some of these, right? Like whether it's female bullfighters or diner waitresses or the hair salons. What is the process for you to go to the next level with your research, not just considering something, but then, okay, I'm actually going to pursue this, interview people, really dive into that, that? Yeah, usually the project finds me and it won't let me alone. Really? Okay. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things where, I mean, it comes to me in my dreams or, you know, it's something I've been thinking about forever. And, um, you know, my first project was out of grad school. Um, I went to grad school in California College of the Arts in San Francisco. I was waitressing to get through grad school. And I was probably in my late 20s. I was really one of the older people working there. Um, I worked with all these young 20 year olds and we would complain about how exhausted we were at the end of the night. And I thought, how in the world do women who are in their seventies and eighties do this work? And they work in diners and their shifts are twice as long as ours and they have twice as many tables and we're complaining. Um, so it's those kinds of situations where, you know, and then I looked, I wanted the answer to that question and I couldn't find it. There weren't any comprehensive books about female, you know, diner waitresses. Um, There were plenty of books about diners and the architecture of diners, and there'd be maybe five pages about waitresses. There were a couple of books on waitressing um, that were really seminal, but not looking at this particular subculture of older women who have been working all their lives, sometimes 50 years in the same diner. So that was my thesis. You know, I thought, well, I want to know the answer to this. I'm going to make it up into a project. And, um, you know, same thing with the hair project, American Roots. I was sitting there under the hairdryer at my hair salon for almost 10 years and realized one, one day a woman, a white woman came in and wanted to get her hair done. And she just wanted a 
wash and set, which is a very you know simple thing. But my hairdresser, Gigi, said, oh, I, I, I can't do that and turned her away. And I thought, that's strange. And then as soon as she left, Gigi said, you know, I don't do white hair. And I thought, oh, my God. And I'm black and everybody in there is black. And I thought, oh, and it just dawned on me that everybody always, every time I've ever been there has only been black. And I, and I thought, am I in a segregated space that I didn't even recognize? I mean, of course, there's the logistics of black hair. Um, and then I thought, well, what are, are other salons like this? Um, it made sense to me that Gigi was protecting the conversations and the culture that was happening in that space. But then it became a mission to understand not just with black hair, but, you know, are, are there Japanese salons? Are there salons that, you know, especially in immigrant communities um, where language is a barrier um, that, that, you know, I thought this is, I have to know. And nothing had been done really looking deeply at ethnic um, beauty shop culture. So then that became that project. So yeah, it's, you know, the way I got into the green book, this is the only project in my career that I'd been commissioned to do outside of something that I, you know, I had my own idea, but um, moon travel uh, guide, they do a series of travel guides they asked me to do a book on Route 66 because I had documented diner waitresses on Route 66 for counterculture, my first book. So I thought, okay, and I needed the money and I did it. I was in, I was embroiled in this project. I was regretting it um, because it wasn't enough money to really make a living. <laughs> I thought, why am I, how did I get into this? And, um, and as I'm doing the research, I realized, you know, that I learned that half the counties along Route 66 were sundown towns, and sundown towns are all white communities. They were all white on purpose. Um, there were 89 counties that went from Chicago to Los Angeles. That's the route of Route 66. And 44 of them, nearly half, were sundown towns. And I thought, you know, and they that meant if you were black, you could not be in the town after 6 p.m. or there would be consequences. And I thought, well, how in the world did black people drive Route 66? And because I asked that question, I, I, it led me down a rabbit hole, but also into the Altry Museum where they had an actual green book. Uh, first time I'd ever seen one. I didn't know one had existed. This was 2013 when most of the world didn't really know about the green book, and uh, which was a travel guide that was published for black people, if your listeners don't know. Um, and I was fascinated because 95%, almost 98% of all the books that have been written on Route 66 had been written by white males. And I guess they just simply hadn't asked that question. Um, so then the project really shifted and the light bulb went off. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the project. you know. So I finished the Route 66 book, and then I was off to the races with Overground Railroad. Yeah, the common narrative, like you said, around the Route 66 is kind of like this, hey, you know, get your kicks wild and free, you know, travel, have fun. And certainly it was pretty much the opposite of that <laughs> during the Jim Crow era for black travelers. When I first heard about the Green Book, this was some years ago as well, I, I was just like, how 
how is this not common knowledge? Like, how how do more people not know about this history? And I mean, as we're recording this, is Black History Month, and I think of you know travel history. I don't know if it gets any bigger than this, at least in the states. I mean, there's a lot of history with with travel, but this was such an important guidebook. I think it's so different because you know you buy a guidebook now because you're just wanting to see and do fun things, right? And learn about a place. This green book was for survival in many ways and for safety and, and it's just so much more uh, than that. Can you just give us an overview of, of you know where you've been, how many you've documented? And then I just wanted to hear a little bit more about what it's like for you to visit these sites. Right. Um, well, I started the field research. The bulk of the field research happened. I, I had a fellowship at Harvard with Henry Louis Gates and uh, and and I had already had the book contract um, and I had a deadline and I had done some I had scouted maybe less than a couple of thousand at that point. There's when I first started the project, Wikipedia said there were fifteen hundred green book sites, but because again, so few people really knew about the Green Book. There were only two editions of the Green Book that we even had access to online. Um, I did a fellowship at the Schomburg Center in Harlem, and they have the largest collection of Green Books in the world. They have over, um, they have like 24 now, I think. They had 23 when I, when I did my fellowship there. So after I had cataloged, and I'm still cataloging these sites, I've cataloged over 10,000 of them now. And like I said, Wikipedia said, oh, there's 1,500. So this has been an evolving process because for so many decades, even black folks who use the Green Book um, and who remember using it, which aren't really that many when you think of, I mean, the people that I asked when I first learned about the Green Book, most people, even black people said, I don't, I've never heard of this and I don't know what that is. Um, my stepfather, Ron, did uh, in my family, but no one else in my family knew what it was. So it was an interesting, it's been an interesting journey um, learning about the Green Book in real time, because as we get more editions, the Schomburg, when I first started the project, there was no 66, 67 edition. And now, and then there was, they digitized it as well, which is amazing. So if you Google NYPL, New York Public Library, Green Book, um, you'll see them. They've digitized all of them. You can flip through them. It's a wonderful resource. But when I started the project, we didn't have that. So when I left Harvard, I had enough material that I could have written a book um, because I'd done all the scholarly research. I had done some field work um, to get a snapshot of really I'd estimated that less than 3% of these businesses are actually still operating. About 80% are gone, meaning they're just demolished or beyond recognition. Um, so I had those numbers that I felt comfortable with. But I realized I did not have a handle on the culture that created a space for the Green Book and what has happened to these spaces since the ceasing of uh, since, you know, 67, since actually the Civil Rights Act was passed. So much has happened in our country around um, 
equality and fairness, whether it's redlining or urban renewal or all of these government forces that really shape these communities um, and what they look like today and how they function today is very different than how they were in the 60s and the 40s when the Green Book was thriving. So it, I made, it was my mission to go to as many as possible. And so before I wrote the book, I had scouted, I think, over 4,000 uh, green book sites. Now I've scouted over 6,000 um, sites. I photographed over 200. And as I said, I've estimated that, you know, about 3% are still operating. But I'm still involved in this process of discovering them in their in their real spaces, because I think it's so different when you learn about something in a book uh, versus when you're actually standing in front of that building, even if the business is still gone, there's something visceral about being in that in that neighborhood and seeing what's there, what's not there, or how that neighborhood feels. If it's sterile, I mean, there's parts of, you know, Tulsa and the Greenwood District, um, and the the fragility of, you know, we're losing this history. We've lost most of it, but I do think it can be resurrected in ways of, you know, using technology, using AR. There's all these different ways we can um, re-engage with this history. So that, you know, it's still, the project is still um, very much a part of my life in that way. And it has mostly to do with, you know, the field research. We'll be back right after this. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why. 
We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Let's get back to the show. I heard you talking in another interview and, and discussing that middle ground between academia and mass media. And I think what you're doing here is, yeah, it's, it's this combination, like you said, scholarly research, but then you're using your creativity as an artist to really bring this to life in, in a, to use your word, a visceral way. I just wanted you to speak a little bit to that in, in your experience and, and just your thoughts around how you've structured this project to kind of bridge those two worlds and what that does for the overall awareness and preserving that history. Yeah. I mean, I, I was an artist before I was anything else. So I don't, I think differently. I noticed, um, because my, you know, my, I went to, as I said, grad school, um, at the California college of the arts and I was a scenic painter for film and television. I, I graduated undergrad with painting and drawing. Um, and I was a painter. So grad school really liberated me from being a painter even though I was in an art school, I was, my master's degree was in visual criticism, which is a fancy liberal arts, very expensive degree, but <laughs> it's a little <laughs> abstract, but it was really pivotal and it was critical to my, um, to my path because like I said, it liberated me from just being a painter. I knew I didn't want to be in the gallery system as an artist. Um, it's, it was too elitist for me. It was a lot of smoke and mirrors. I didn't really care. I mean, of course I love, there's some contemporary artists that I worship, Mark Bradford and others and the Astor Gates. And there are people I think in that world that are doing incredible work, but it didn't feel like it was my path because I really wanted to make work for the masses. And again, it was this elite um, audience that you're, that you're involved with when you're doing gallery work. And I just knew it wasn't going to be my path. And when I, so I got into, as a scenic artist, I was a union scenic painter. I was painting backdrops for all these different film and theater productions. And it was very commercial and it wasn't very inspiring, although it was a really good job because for the first time I had health insurance and benefits and, um, but I was miserable. So I left that, went to grad school and uh, took this visual criticism uh, degree, which basically was focused mostly on writing. Um, and that's when I picked up a camera for the first time. I wasn't, you know, my first book, Counterculture, had a lot of photographs in it, but I wasn't trained as a photographer. I had a, a skilled eye as an artist, which I guess was enough. That program showed me it, it didn't matter what the medium was. It was about the work and about the subject and all the theory that I've read that, you know, that program taught me how to read theory and to get to deeper layers of meaning around a subject and taught me how to think deeper than most people are, are taught how to think. And I think that's what really, that was the engine that powered my every project after that. And I think it's what has made my projects different because apparently, I mean, there's, you know, there are plenty of people who've written about waitresses or written about hair or, or doing, you know, now that 
I was one of the first people doing the Green Book. There were maybe just a few of us um, who even knew what the Green Book was that were writing about it and being, you know, and publishing uh, works on it. But now, of course, it's, you know, there's plenty of Green Book projects all over the country. And um, But what makes my work different is it's because it's through my eyes as an artist. And I know that when I would sit in these really incredible rooms at the Schaumburg or at Harvard with these brilliant people, you know, we've been chosen for this fellowship and it was just, you know, I got to spend time with Cornell West and obviously Skip Gates, but my peers in that program were incredibly brilliant, but they thought very differently than I did. I mean, academia teaches you kind of to put up the walls to be very specialized in your thinking and as an artist, I'm so expansive, you know, and I would say, well, why can't you do this or that? Or why can't you know, have you thought about how to visualize A, B or C? And, and they would look at me like I never thought about I never thought about it that way. And I think that's just what, you know, it makes me different. Now, there's a curse. It's a blessing and a curse to think this way, because I have so many broad ideas and ways to engage in this material that's different. And it makes me very hard to pigeonhole. I mean, if you look at my book, obviously, it's not a traditional academic book. I was intimately involved in the design of that book. I knew I had a very specific vision. And so finding the right partners who are going to let me, who are going to take the the reins off um, and, and trust me, um, it's, you know, that's the it's, I won't say it's a downside, but it's definitely a, a consequence um, to getting uh, what I want. Yeah. And we should mention the book, of course, we'll leave the link, but the Overground Railroad, the Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. When did travel become a thing for you? The first time I was on a plane, I was maybe six or seven. So, and I went to Europe when I was 11. My grandmother was a French teacher she taught French and she would go to Paris every year and take her students. So I definitely grew, I did, you know, there's a lot of American, uh, Americans who will never leave their hometown until they're older, you know, um, or in their teens or in their twenties. But so, I mean, I, in terms of travel, being exposed to travel, I was exposed very early, but, um, in terms of my own independent travel, it was after, when I was 17, I graduated from high school two years. I skipped two grades in school. So I graduated really young and I left Ohio at the age of like 17. I was in my first year of college at Ohio State and I was so bored. My calculus class was 600 students and I just thought this isn't for me. And I dropped out. And even though I had a full ride, my mother was horrified. She, she wanted to kill me. Oh, I'm sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> she was like, you did what? And of course, I told her after, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Good move. <laughs> and, then, and I said, and I'm having a garage sale this weekend. And then I'm moving to Boston. She's like, what? <laughs> like, Wait, she hold on. So, <laughs> she was furious. Um so yeah, so that that's how I left Ohio. And then I just kept going. And I think within that, with three years, I had moved to five different places. I moved to Providence, to New Orleans, and ended up in San Francisco. And uh, that's where I went to undergrad. Um, and so it was after undergrad, I took my first long road trip. And I was on the road with a friend all summer. 
And we just would drive six hours each day and just kind of discover America. I'm black, obviously, and she was uh, Jewish. And it was fascinating because we would, when we went to the South, there were places we'd be warned about, um, you know, Jasper, Texas, or there's Orange, Texas, like, you know, that they're, I guess what they probably were saying, it was formerly some kind of sundown town. I didn't know the term for that at the time, but, you know, they said, don't be there after dark, or if you can avoid these areas, you would, you know, you should. And I knew about racism, but San Francisco is very utopian in the sense that race was never really, I, I had never felt threatened physically. Um, even though I knew racism it existed, and I had been exposed, I'd been fighting with, you know, neo-Nazis as a teenager. And I, I was not naive, um, but to be vulnerable on the road or to be in the middle of Tennessee and, and walk into a place, you know, hoping to use a restroom and realizing that it's not a safe place. Um, and those, those instincts of survival of just thinking I'm not safe here. I never experienced that until that trip. And, um, and yeah, and, and again, it was, you know, fascinating and, and of course, thankfully we were safe, nothing happened, but it exposed me to this whole new way of seeing this country. So from there, you know, I, I did the waitress project, but every project I've done, then I'm, I'm kind of a lone wolf. I've never travel with people. My mother was a, she was my assistant in the early stages of counterculture. Uh, so she would go with me and set up my tripod and um, get the waitresses to sign the consent forms. And she was lovely and, and she was my travel buddy. But outside of that, I, I traveled alone and I still do. Um, I just prefer to do it that way because I think people slow me down <laughs> and I have a stupid work ethic where I don't want to subject anybody to 16 hour days. And, you know, I just, it's easier for me to be alone. Yeah. I mean, we, well, solo travel is a hot topic on this show. And I think the consensus is that it's, it's a wonderful experience overall. And I always encourage people to do it if they get a chance, if they've never taken trip on their own. Now, I'm curious with the projects you've selected, it seems like travel has been an integral part of that. And I'm just wondering if that was intentional, right? Like, because you, you love travel. So you're like, well, you know, Hey, this is, this is important for all these reasons. And also I get to travel. <laughs> you know, I love hotels. I love being on the road. I love driving. I only take having an iPhone really changed my life as a traveler when I was starting counterculture, um, there, you know, there, there weren't iPhones, I don't think, or I didn't have one at least. Um, but being able to wander and not get lost was a huge asset because I don't, I try and stay off the highways as much as possible. And now, you know, with Google, I just choose the avoid highways option which I love because then I can, even if it's a trip that would normally take two hours, if it's four hours to get there without highways, I'm going to drive the extra two hours because I don't think for me, I can't really get a sense of the pulse of the country through the freeways. Um, 
you, you know, I being on the back roads, um, seeing driving through all these small communities, seeing how Confederate flags are were everywhere, and now it's Trump flags and American flags actually that have popped up in places where it was mostly Confederate flags. So you don't, I wouldn't know that if I was just driving the the freeways and the monotony of the freeway too. I just, it's not for me. So that became a real factor in, you know, how I traveled, um, where I would go. And I loved being, I think at some stages of, you know, whether it was a hair project, I think it dawned on me because I'd always know that no matter how hard the day was and how challenging, you know, if I had a interviews that, you know, a lot of these hair salons, it was very difficult to get in and getting people comfortable with me being in there when you're most vulnerable and your hair looks crazy, it's all over your head. And I'm trying to interview people. It was really difficult. Um, and it was important work. And I was, I had a grant from library of Congress. So I was, you know, I knew that this work would have a home. It would be archived. I knew it was important, but it was hard. And, um, at the end of the day, I just wanted to make sure I had a nice hotel that I knew I was going to go to. So I looked forward to that. And I think at some stages I thought, my God, the hotel, I like that more than the work right now. Um, And I always thought about, I should just do a book on hotels, but I, you know, it's not that interesting. (laughs) The the luxury hotel book is coming next, right? I mean, no, but you know, I just, because that's how much I love, um, I worked in hotels I when I was before I worked in as a waitress. Um, so I there's something about that industry that I love. And so I, you know, when I go to those places, it's not that I just see it as a as a customer. I, you know, I see the other side of it too when I used to work in these places. And um I have affinity for the people who work in those those industries. So yeah, I for me it's as much I'd say as much about the travel as it is about the project, if not a little more. About <laughs> yeah, so you like being on the road. I love it. It's my home away from home. I mean, my last trip, I was on the road for four months, almost five months. I drove I don't know twenty five thousand miles, and even at the end of that trip, even though I thought oh, I've been on the road for a while. And I was ready to come home because I am a homebody too, which is interesting. I'm either all at home or all on the road. I was looking forward to coming home. I live in in Harlem, New York, but I thought I could still just even, I was still missing the road before I'd even stopped, you know, after being on the road for almost five months. Hmm. So, yeah. That's where Victor Hugo Green is from as well, right? The author of the Green Book. Wasn't he from Harlem? Yes, he was. Yeah. yeah. He That's was. interesting. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's not by, I mean, New York has over 800 green book sites, 823, um, because it was a birthplace of the green book. And Victor Green was here in the early 1930s. Well, he's from Harlem, but it was in 1935 when he started really writing about, you know, I think that's when, the first Green Book was published in 1936, but you know we can assume that he was engaged in developing it in 1935. 
Um, and there was a race riot here in Harlem in 1935 that I imagine inspired him to produce the Green Book because even parts of Harlem, 125th Street, were segregated. Um, there were places that Black people could go into and, and then others they couldn't. Uh, even after the Harlem Renaissance of the 20s, when everybody assumed that just uh, Harlem was a Black mecca for um, art and creativity and, and intellectualism, which it was, but it was still segregated. And Victor Green, you know, the first Green Book was primarily, the sites were just primarily Harlem. And uh, he was really solving his own problem. You know, he thought, well, I, I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I want other people to know where they can go. And um, so it was just a very, I think, immediate, you know, personal solution to a problem he was having. And, but it, because it was such a, it was so necessary, right from the beginning, I mean, by even within three years, the Green Book had grown out of it to every state east of the Mississippi River, um, which is pretty much almost half the United States. So it had really grown. But it's important that people know that the Green Book wasn't the first black travel guide. Uh, there were nearly a dozen tra black travel guides that were published during the Jim Crow era. And the first one was called Hackley and Harrison's, and it was published in 1930. It was only published for a year, although it was popular um, it didn't have the breadth and the reach of the Green Book because Victor Green, who published the next Black Travel Guide in 1936, um, his Green Book was so, I think the reason why we're talking about it today is because he was an incredible businessman. Even though he only had a seventh grade education, he created a guide that was visually amazing. He had found a white publisher, which was unusual there's a story in my book about when Victor Green goes to Midtown and walks into this publishing office and the Glenner uh, family um, ran Gibraltar Publishing. And I have an interview with Mr. Glenner saying, you know, it was incredible to see this, you know, very large, dapper, very distinguished, um, well-dressed, you know, he was over six feet tall and he was always impeccably dressed um, black man walk into our shop and offer us this opportunity because it was an opportunity because it was, they made money off the green book and he ends up taking that from them and going to an even bigger publisher later because he wanted more pictures. He wanted this offset printing, this new technique. Um, so Victor Green had a vision and he made the right partnerships with Esso um, to distribute the Green Book, which was ExxonMobil today, but Esso gas stations distributed the Green Book. And, you know, other black travel guides just didn't have that kind of reach and they weren't in publication for you know, three decades. So that's, I think, why we're talking about it today. And it sold millions, right? Millions of... Yeah, we don't know the exact numbers because his business records have never really been discovered. Um we know where his Victor Green's business was located above Small's Paradise in Harlem, 135th Street in New York. Um, but no one has actually seen any bookkeeping records. But we have estimates that um, by the 1960s, 
it was circulating over 2 million people uh, were, were buying the green book. But, you know, again, it's just estimates. I know I read that in one of the later editions, I don't remember the exact verbiage, but that hopefully this guide will be uh, you know, unnecessary one day and I can actually stop publishing this. I mean, find another <laughs> book that, that says, I mean, it speaks to the importance of, uh, you know, everything that was going on to serve people through this book and just the fact that he had that intention, you know. Yeah, no, he actually started writing that in his introduction in the earlier editions. Yes. Um, and that's what's heartbreaking about it. <laughs> it was published many times throughout the Green Book. Um, the life of the green book. It was sad um, because he thought, yeah, there will be, there will, hopefully there will come a day when this will not have to be published. And then he dies in 1960. So he doesn't even live to see the passage of the civil rights act. And the green book continues to be published because Alma Duke green, who is Victor green's wife, who was a pivotal force in the success and longevity of the Green Book, um, because Victor Green worked full time as a, a postal worker, a letter carrier, pretty much throughout his, you know, the especially the early first two decades of the Green Book, and into 1950s, you know, he's still working full time as a letter carrier, um, even though he has an office, uh, and you know, the Green Book has a staff, and it is a thing, you know, it's not that. He really was a professional enterprise, but um, but it was Alma, his wife, who picked up the mantle and definitely think created an environment for him to be able to do that. And then she worked also with him very closely on the Green Book. And then after he dies, she becomes a publisher and um, and an editor. And then it's almost an all female enterprise after that. Uh, all the women who were listed in the as staff, there's only one name that we don't know that are its uh, initials. So we don't know the gender of that person, but everybody else is a uh, female who's working on, who's, you know, creating the green book. And then Alma gives the green book to Langley Waller and Melvin Tapley. Um, so they are the last two publishers of the green book. Um, the 63, 64 edition and 66, 67 editions were published by them. So yeah, it, it had quite a life. And I think that, you know, had Victor Green, what I would think of often when I'm on the road is when I'm in places where some of these communities that were thriving and centers for black entrepreneurship, because the Green Book didn't just have lodging and food options like a triple A guide, it was so much more. It had everything from doctors and department stores, and there were funeral homes in the green book. There were banks, there were liquor stores, there were nightclubs, there were anything, you know, and it spoke to really all of the places black people have been shut out of in terms of, you know, society. If you needed to refill your prescription, you couldn't just walk into any drugstore and expect to be served. Um, you know, there were garages in the green book, um, in case your car broke down because, you know, some places you could get gas, but they wouldn't let you use the facilities. So 
Esso was a really great um, brand for, for black folks. They knew if they find an Esso station, they would be served and they would be treated fairly for the most part. So it was, it was more than just, you know, the Green Book would take you to these neighborhoods that were predominantly black, that were pr- really pretty much all black, because that's how, you know, with redlining, it was, there was very little, almost no integration, even possible because of the FHA loans and the way that the loans were structured for mortgages. Um, But, you know, he took you to these areas where there were all of these black owned businesses and you could get your hair done. You know, there were salons in the green book and barbershops and it was a real uh, celebration of, of black ingenuity. And, and, you know, we take that for granted today um, because there's so fewer black owned businesses that are thriving in the same way that these were because they had this quote unquote captive audience. Um, It was the only place black people were really welcomed. So it was a, it was an incredibly important time. And when I go to these places today, when, you know, I'm photographing a site in, in Miami and it is so, you know, the poverty and addiction um, is just so devastating that, you know, I'm waiting for a woman who's walking towards me. I first, I thought maybe she had been assaulted. She was naked from the waist down and, um, and she's twirling her hair. And I, she barely looked like she was 20. She looked like a teenager. Um, And I'm just silently waiting for her to, you know, to not be in the, in the frame of my camera Um, But, you know, she was a prostitute. She gets into a a van and she's just working. But, you know, I see scenes like that. I think, oh, my gosh, this is not the future Victor Green imagined um, for these communities. And in that that way, it is heartbreaking how, you know, our government policies have um, facilitated that kind of environment. And there are places where 53 people have been shot in weekend that I was in some of these communities in Chicago. And I thought that's ironic because these, the green, but the whole purpose of the green book was to take you into these safe zones. And some of these zones are, are really not safe. So it's been a, you know, it's been a journey. And again, I think that's what made the book, my book overground railroad different Um, and that was why I had to go back to my publisher, even though I had this contract saying, oh, I'm going to do a book on the green book and I'm going to talk about these old places and yada, yada. And they, they loved it. And after that trip, after Harvard, I thought, you know, there's a different book here and I really need to contextualize this material to what's happening to today. And kind of, and also while I was on the road, I mean, Trump was elected, um, Charlottesville happened, all of these things that, uh, you know, especially most middle-class white Americans were just so shocked by, um, although I wasn't, but, you know, I thought I really want this book to help explain how we got here and why the assumption that we should be quote unquote further along is is wrong. It's not how history has ever worked. Um, so that became a much harder book to write, but um, I'm glad I did. We'll be back right after this. Would you love to have an incredible 
cup of coffee every day. I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago. And immediately, I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks So they also make an exceptional gift, thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people, on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Let's get back to the show. You know, with all the miles you've put in and, and all the work and for the project, I'm just wondering what has been some of the more satisfying parts for you. I imagine it must be pretty incredible to see somebody maybe like learning about this for the first time or um, just being exposed to it or these types of conversations happening more and more because of what you've created. you know. But for you, what has been the most satisfying part of, of this project? Well, I mean, the fact that it just keeps living in these different spaces and people keep discovering it. I mean, I've been talking about, you know, I've been involved in this material since 2013. Um, but, you know, I just did a, a talk at the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which was so random, you know, um, and they just sent me a letter yesterday, you know, saying that my talk is going to actually influence and, um, you know, provide this crucial context to inform the work they do, that there's an executive order underway under Biden, President Biden, um, that they're involved in to, you know, serve, to really take this information to heart and understand how safety on the roads is not just people getting into accidents, but policing and all of these other, you know, factors. So getting letters like that, I thought, wow, you know, it's still important And I'm still thankful that, uh, you know, that we're able to have these discussions and that if Trump hadn't been elected, we wouldn't really be interrogating our present in the way that we needed to. Um, And although there was still incredible amounts of um, inequities and and strife and and suffering um, of black folks through whether it's policing or poverty, in situations that they did not create um, in those communities, 
you know, we have been subjected to so many, even just in the last 20 years, things that have, um, whether it's, you know, mass incarceration, um, things that have been very different. Again, this was not when Martin Luther King and passed the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, a lot of those policies have been slowly chipped away and reversed. And it's become more aggressive and more brazen. Um, HBCUs being, you know, getting bomb threats. There were a lot of HBCUs or over 100 HBCUs in the Green Book. Um, those are historical, historically black colleges and universities. Um, so, you know, this, this quote unquote history is with us. It's present and we're informing it and we are participating in it in ways that whether or not we know it, you know, so at the back of the book, you know, there's a short section of what can you do? Um, because I think it's not that we should just be passive observers or just fascinated, you know, by history. We are facilitating situations where we're continuing, we're allowing these inequities to evolve and to continue. And we, as no matter, regardless of your race, um, we're part of the problem, you know, as much as, as we could be a part of the solution. So, you know, I really want it to be more of an active, engaging process of discovery, but also, you know, are you complicit in, in some of these things? Are you, is your 401k actually funding the prison industrial complex? It probably is. You know, as much as you're against certain things, you're, you're paying for it, literally. Um, you're making it possible. So, you know, I think we have to take more responsibility as, uh, as citizens, especially in America, um, and not believe that like racism is just happening to us and we're just victims of this system that's unfair. We are part of the reason why it's possible. So, you know, again, I hope the book, that was a point of really turning the lens back on us as a, as a culture and as a society to saying, you know, if we don't like it, um, it is up to us to change it. So I'm, um, but I'm not naive. I know that change has not come easy. And when things change, they change back. That's what we're learning, you know, from the civil rights era. So it's complicated and layered, but I think it's a powerful time to have these conversations because people are finally opening their eyes. And I want to say, you know, my publisher would kill me if I forgot to mention the young adult version of Overground Railroad <laughs> was just published last week. Oh, cool. Congrats. Um, and it's for ages 12 and up. Oh, yeah, um, great. And it's been adapted for that audience because, again, this is the time, especially that age, you're, you're so vulnerable because your body's changing and everything is different. And all of a sudden you, you care about how you look <laughs> and, and you, you're feeling, you know, what it feels like to be judged by your looks and you can't help it because you're changing, you know, and it's a very vulnerable time, but I think it's the perfect time to learn about race because then you develop empathy for how it, how it, much it hurts to be judged unfairly. So again, I think, you know, having this discussion now, as much as the world feels like it's upside down, that's the time when things really can shift. When, when your sense of stability is being challenged is when you are willing to take more risks. So hopefully, you know, the material will do that. Yeah. Thank you for everything that you just shared and, and that you've shared today. And I mean, I think the work you're doing really 
exemplifies that idea of, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. You know, on that note, I'm wondering, you know, what is your advice for uh, an individual out there listening that may want to be, you know, they want to be part of the, the solution or they may want to change the narrative around something or, you know, any of the things that you discuss? I mean, do you have some words of wisdom to share, I suppose? <laughs> well, I think it's interesting to, you know, and I'm going to borrow this from Brian Stevenson, who I think is, you know, kind of the Nelson Mandela of our time. Um, he's runs the Equal Justice Initiative. And uh, I'm sure you just, if you don't know who he is, he's just Google his name. And he wrote Just Mercy. And, you know, but his, I, I ascribe to his mantra where it's like, you have to be uncomfortable. You have to put yourself in uncomfortable situations because that's part of the problem is we are so myopic. I mean, we live in our little bubbles and when you know that there's a problem outside of that bubble, you can be empathetic and you can be a good person and care about things that are happening outside of your world. Um, and it could just be outside of your neighborhood, right? That especially in America, because things are so segregated, but it's, that's not enough. Um, I think until you really get into a space where you are challenged emotionally, and I'm not saying people should put themselves in unsafe situations, um, but to understand things are different, not because they just happen to be that way or not because, you know, we just, black folks don't want to work as hard, <laughs> you know? Um, a lot of the tropes that have been acceptable as to why the situation is different are, are inflammatory and racist. And I think calling yourself on that and saying, huh, I wonder why I think that way. You know, I had a friend of mine whose husband moved to a black neighborhood and he is called her and said, you know, I think I need to ask Candace if I'm racist, you know, because He's questioning that and he's not. And I think the idea of what it means to be racist, quote unquote, does not make you a bad person. Um, it means that we've been raised in a society that is racist. So, of course, everyone who has been infiltrated with that dogma for decades and, you know, centuries, honestly, since how can you not have certain assumptions about things when that is what you've been taught? And unless you really have an experience outside of that, what else are you supposed to believe? So I think we need to loosen the reins on that word. Um, I don't, you know, I grew up with racism in my family as a black family. My grandmother taught French, was very much, you know, policed who I could be around, quote unquote. And there were only certain types of black people, quote unquote, that she would accept. So, and there's colorism within the black community. You know, I write about that in my book. Um, there's racism within every race. So it's not, it's that it's, and that's a symptom of being raised in this country. So I think, you know, you know, that binary idea of like, if you're racist, you're bad. And if you're not, and you're trying to not be racist, well, these people who are not quote unquote racist have racist thoughts because how can you, that is how we've been raised in this country. So I think really being able to open that discussion up and have layers and put yourself in uncomfortable situations and challenge yourself, you know, I think is the way anybody grows. And you can say that for anything, whether it's exercise or social norms. You know? So I, you know, I just 
wish there was more nuance room for for those kinds of discussions but at least have them in your family and educate yourself there's plenty of books there's enough material out there to educate all of us you know especially the books that have been written in the last 5 years my god um so there's enough information out there um but physically put yourself in situations where you feel like you need to learn what and do you know what it is that your own biases are you know everybody knows deep inside um so bring that to the surface and challenge yourself this is a, a bit of a travel question but also related to your projects i'm just wondering how you get people to open up you know maybe this is a selfish question as an interviewer but you know you go into these situations and you, you're like you said somebody's getting their hair done or you know you're talking to the busy waitress or whatever the case is and you know you have to get people to open up and make a connection with them and i think this goes across you know the board for for travelers in terms of like just connecting with people on the ground in different places. I think any type of project. I've always seen one of the big advantages on the travel side. I feel when you have a a project like the projects that you've done, or any really any anybody that's created a project around something, and then it involves travel, is it's a way to kind of open up the conversation, right? You you probably go into places that you wouldn't have be going to if you hadn't been working on that specific project, maybe talking to certain people, you probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to speak with. That adds a whole other element to the travel experience, I think. But how do you make those connections on the ground and get people to open up? It's hard because there's no magic formula. And then I think it, it involves a little bit of magic, right? I mean, there's some days when people open up and other days they don't. I mean, you have to come with an with pure intention of openness and if you come to people you know it that's the hardest part you have to know obviously your audience but i think once i spent enough time with people even if they had clammed up in the beginning when they saw that my intention wasn't to you know exploit or even in any way you know a lot of times that's the thing with the waitressing project, I was a waitress. So I wasn't this, you know, grad student trying to pick their brains, you know, which I hate that term. It's, it sounds so painful. I was a waitress saying, I want to understand, like, I know what it's like to, to work, you know, a shift and feel exhausted. Like, tell me, you know, like, what, how is it for you? And so I was meeting them in a place where, you know, I was, I, I at least had their part of their experience. Um, the hair project was also, that was the hardest one. I almost had to quit because I didn't know I would just be shut out so early on. I wouldn't even get a chance to get in the door to, you know, have a human connection. But I think ultimately it's about being human and it's about being real and not having, you know, airs of like, I'm going to document quote unquote you. I mean, that's really offensive to a lot of people as it should be. Um, to put people under a microscope. And, but I think if you're, if you're personable and human and you come with an open heart and then hopefully in that moment, something, you know, happens that I think is a little magic where you kind of see each other and not your, and for who you are and not for what that person wants or you want from them um, is when you get the best moments, but you have to just do it you do it a lot. I mean, there's some days that, 
yeah, I couldn't break through, you know, to a real human experience. Um, and it may have been that I woke up in a weird mood that day. You know, we're, we're not machines and there's no, there's no one way to right way to do it. Um, and with every project, it demands a different approach. And you learn that just by doing it. So, yeah, but don't step up with, you know, your camera out and <laughs> wanting to, you know, you bring that out later. <laughs> yeah, don't, you know, it's it's a give and take. It's not a take situation. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. And they have to feel valued, you know, that that it is, that they're what they're offering is, to me, it's much more valuable than anything I'm giving them. You know, even if it is does get published or whatever, um, you know, to me, the experience that, you know, it's why I spend so much energy making sure that it's not just the work I do, that it's archived, that it's available to people. You know, you can go to the Library of Congress and they've archived a lot of my interviews from the Hair Project and the, and the um, Green Book Project um, so that, you know, they can be shared not for just academics, but for everybody. Yeah. Thank you. I know we're getting to the end here, but I, you know, I'd be remiss if I did not ask you who has been uh, driving half a million miles <laughs> around the United States. What are some of your favorite road trip spots? I still think road tripping around the States is one of my favorite travel experiences anywhere in the world. There's something special about a good road trip in the U S. So, I mean, you've written guidebooks on it. You've, you know, <laughs> driven all these miles. Give us your, uh, Give us some of your favorite places. Oh my God. It, it's a hard, you know, it's like asking wh- who your favorite children. I know it's not, it's children. not fair. It doesn't have to be your but, favorite, but you know, I'm sure there's a montage of experiences going through your head right now, but yeah. yeah, if you don't mind sharing a couple. Yeah. But I have to say, you know, I, cause I've lived all over the country too. And, um, and it's, you know, the West is just parts of Eastern Texas driving right when you pass into Eastern tech. I mean, I, there's a photograph that's on my business card of a gas station. Um, cause I was documenting bingo culture for a minute. I had a 13 hour drive before I had an interview at like five o'clock. I was like, why is Texas so big? Oh my God, this is, you know, and I was trying to make it. And of course the speed limit's 90 miles an hour in that part of the country. But and I had to leave before sun the sun rose to make this, you know, interview. And when the sun came up, I took this photo of, you know, just the nothingness and expansiveness of that land. And it is just soul stirring for me. It's the it's like it makes it the nothingness of it just gives me so much peace. And so I did end up living in the Mojave Desert um, for years outside of a, it's called a, it's Wonder Valley. It's so hip, hipsterfied now. It's a, it's so sad what, you know, Joshua Tree and all that area. Um, it's so expensive now. And when I lived there, there were still a bunch of artists out there, but it was very um, livable. And I still would recommend people go visit because it is such a special part of the world. Um, and there's so many great things happening there. But yeah, the Mojave Desert and Eastern Texas, um, that part of the West to me is just, it's just um, like nothing else I've ever experienced. And uh, I'll always love it. Yeah. And some diners. 
I'm going to throw that in there. I'm assuming you would too. I mean, I used to work at a diner and oh, really? I love, <laughs> I mean, that's probably one of the things I miss the most living abroad is just going to a diner and <laughs> yeah. having the diner experience. And, you know, you sit at the counter and you hear the conversations and the whole thing. I, I miss that. <laughs> oh, no. And we're losing our diners. You know, I live in New York now and, you know, New Jersey and New York are the, that classic Airstream trailer diner. That's where that was born. And we've lost most of them. And, but I love also the coffee shops of the West coast to LA, you know, Googie, those space age looking coffee shop pans, you know, um, coffee shop is an iconic uh, it's just of that architecture and of that time. And it's been restored enough where it's a lot of films have filmed it. You've probably seen it and not known it, but, you know, visit pans, um, in, in Los Angeles. Um, and there's just, yeah, the diners are, you know, they're, they're that third place, right? I mean, they feel like home and there's that every day, it just democratizes like, everything from ditch diggers to senators, you know, <laughs> hanging out in the diner. Um, and then the, the waitresses, obviously the old school servers are, um, they're, I think a vanishing subculture. Yeah. So I think, you know, Give me some sass with those home fries. I definitely yeah. want some sass with those home fries. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a, yeah. It's a great, it's a great thing. Uh, well, so what's next for you or what are you working on now? Well, I mean, I'm, you know, still, involved in this. Uh, my book just came out, right, last week. So we are getting a book tour together. I'm going to be doing some talks, uh, some book signings in like the Chicago History Museum. And uh, um, I'm going to be, if you you have my website on there, so I'll have a, a tour that I'm speaking with my um, publicist on Friday. So we're firming up that tour, but I'll be on the road. Um, most of uh, March, almost all of March. And I'm speaking at also, I have an exhibition with the Smithsonian um, that I've curated on the content specialist for it's the Smithsonian Institution um, traveling exhibition service. It's called sites. And it's a 3500 square foot exhibit um, based on my book. Uh, that's called Negro motorist green book. And it's traveling throughout the United States. And it's um, going to be traveling through 2024, I have a, I'll be speaking, um, on the 26th of February at the California museum in Sacramento. So that's, uh, an exhibition that I hope people can, can go to see if you, uh, Google the, maybe I can give you the link for the, um, it's negromotoristgreenbook.si.edu is the, uh, you can find out about the tour. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, that's happening. So I'm really still mired in this, in this work, even though the book has been out, um, I'm working on a mobile marker system of green book sites. Um, so it's a different type of, it's a more modern marker system than the traditional markers that I think they're kind of ugly and most people walk by them and don't. <laughs> I, I read them, but most people don't, you know, the um, National Register markers. So I'm working on that. I'm working on a project with National Park Service to rewrite the context of how Green Book sites should be nominated for the National Register. 
So I'm very busy um, still in this material. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I mean, it's it's been such a privilege to get to chat with you and to hear how this all came together for you and just to get to know you a bit and really appreciate the work you're doing. And I really appreciate your time just coming on here and having this conversation so we can share this. And I, yeah, please check out the book. We'll leave all the links and please, you know, see if the, the exhibit's coming your way or any anything else. I mean, it's, it's be well worth your time. Yeah. Do you want to share any other, I mean, obviously we'll leave the uh, link to your website, TaylorMade Culture. Do you want to share anything else? Any parting words or or did I miss um, anything? No, no, <laughs> no, this has been wonderful. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, I'm on Twitter at Candace Taylor and Instagram, although I'm not great with social media. So, yeah, but, you, and me uh, both. <laughs> you know, but that's there's that. But otherwise, no, this has been lovely. And I really appreciate the conversation because um, I usually don't get to talk about my earliest days in travel. So that was that was a nice surprise for me. Great. <laughs> Thank you, Candace, and uh, hope to stay in touch. Oh, will do. Thank you. Take care. There you have it. Thank you so much to Candace Taylor for stopping by and for sharing her time and the stories. I so admire her commitment to this project, and she has been a huge part of bringing the Green Book I wouldn't say back to life, but it it's it takes people like Candace to keep history alive. And that is what she's doing through this project. And of course, I love how she's combined it with her own uh, joy for travel and road tripping and exploring the United States. So what, what a way to give back. And this reminds me of a quote that has really inspired me that I read in a book recently. It was a question asked by Jonas Salk, who created the vaccine for polio. And he said, quote, are we being good ancestors? I think this is a great question to ask ourselves when we are contemplating what kind of legacy we might want to leave behind. Everybody goes at some point, you can leave a body of work behind. You can leave something behind. It may not last forever, but we can all leave something. And I just think that's a wonderful lens to explore that question. Are we being good ancestors? Something I'm pondering right now anyway. And I think this idea is exactly what Candace's doing. She's being a good ancestor. So thanks again to her. Now I want to leave you with a quote before I let you go. This one's from the legendary writer Maya Angelou, who said, quote, Perhaps travel cannot prevent bigotry, but by demonstrating that all peoples cry, laugh, eat, worry, and die... It can introduce the idea that if we try and understand each other, we may even become friends, end quote. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Peace and love. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.